Well, brothers and sisters, before I begin, let me uh, ask for prayer. I uh, have been struggling with congestion through the weekend, sinuses, and uh, so I'm hoping that this morning will go well and I'll be able to open God's Word here to you, uh, but I would appreciate your prayers on my behalf as I'm struggling to uh, breathe and, and to hopefully won't lose my voice here in the process, all right? But uh, with, with, those, with that uh, in mind, brothers and sisters, let us trust God as we turn to His Word and we are turning together in Scripture, we're actually returning in Scripture to the book of Revelation. So hopefully uh, you brought back your notebooks if you've been using those. And if you haven't, please remember to bring those with you, but uh, turn with me in your notebooks or in God's Word to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. While you're turning there to Revelation, uh, what do you think of when you hear the word revival? Now, for some of you who grew up in church, the idea of revival is a series of meetings where you invite in a special evangelist to preach and to seek the salvation of lost sinners through these meetings and the preaching of the gospel. But for me, as someone who loves church history, when I hear the word revival, I think of the revivals in our nation's history, like the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening here in America. It comes to mind and stirs my soul as I reminded of how during the 18th century there were these great preachers such as Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and George Whitfield who powerfully preached the gospel and many souls were saved and many Christians experienced a renewed love for Christ and they sought to live for his glory so during this time of American history churches were filled ministries were started and the wider society was impacted what wonderful times these were as the Holy Spirit then was poured out greatly on our nation. But to revive means to bring back to life. So a revival is what takes place when life comes out of death. And this morning, our passage confronts us with a question. Do we need a revival? Do we? brothers and sisters, need a revival. Because the church of Sardis did, even though they thought everything was fine. That's what we read this morning here through this letter. Let's read together Revelation 3, beginning with verse 1. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, let us again go before the throne of God in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have been able to gather here this morning in your presence. And we've come to the time that you have appointed for us to hear and receive the truths of your word. Father, may Christ be glorified among us as we are confronted with the deadness of sin and of the life that Christ gives us through your Spirit. Father, we pray that even as we hear these words, we will wrestle over this question in our hearts. Do we need a revival? Because, Father, you are the one who gives life. And it's through our, this life, then, that we have hope. Because our only hope in life and death, as we have sung, is Christ alone. Christ alone. So Father, I pray that you will use me in my weakness, that your strength will be poured out through your Holy Spirit as your word is proclaimed. Father, I pray that even through congestion, this will not distract us then from the precious treasure that you give us in your word. Father, we pray for these things in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So do we need a revival? Brothers and sisters, what this passage is telling us is to watch out for our deadness. Watch out for deadness. And this is seen through the four parts of this letter. First, in a false reputation. Second, through a full repentance. Third, in a faithful remnant. Fourth, with a final reminder. Let's begin then in verse 1, where we read of a false reputation. And since it's been a few weeks since we have been in the book of Revelation, let us briefly review. This is a book that has been written by the Apostle Paul to churches that are in the region of Asia Minor, which would be in the modern-day nation of Turkey. But in this book, uh, John, the Apostle John here, records these visions that he has received from God about Jesus Christ on the Lord's Day. And so it's through these symbolic visions that John writes down the things which he had seen, both the things that which were true in his time and the things which would soon take place after he had written. This book then is to be sent to these seven churches, which are all struggling and suffering in various ways through tribulation as an encouragement to endure. And these seven churches then represent all of Christ's churches through this age, which is why this book remains an encouragement to us today. You see, Revelation is a book of hope for God's people. Since he is ruling and reigning from heaven over all things until he returns. Which is why Revelation opens with a glorious vision of Christ Jesus in all his sovereign glory as king. 
And as we come to chapters 2 and 3, this glorious Christ then turns to address each of these seven churches with a letter. And what we see is all is not well among them. So he speaks to each church so that they will overcome the world through their faith in Christ, who has overcome the world through his death and resurrection glory. Consider for a moment the situation of each of the churches we have studied so far. The church of Ephesus stood firm on the truth of God's word, but had lost their first love. The church of Smyrna was suffering under intense tribulation and poverty. The church of Pergamos remained faithful to Christ, but was compromising their faith by tolerating false teaching. And the church of Thyatira was essentially the opposite of the church of Ephesus and had gone further down the road of compromise than the church of Pergamos, since those in Thyatira were loving towards God and one another, but they too had been seduced by false teaching, which had corrupted the church. Brothers and sisters, then how much we see these churches needing to hear from Christ. And what have we seen so far? That Christ is present among his churches. That he does not leave them alone as his churches struggle and suffer, but he speaks to us through his word and empowers us through his spirit so that we will keep his word. So why then we come here in chapter 3 to the fifth letter, which we see is written to the church of Sardis. The verse begins, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. Now what do we know about the city of Sardis? Sardis was less than 40 miles southeast of Thyatira, the previous church, and it was an ancient city which had been the capital centuries before of the kingdom of Lydia as well as the center of the Persian government for a time. Sardis had also been a wealthy commercial center and was a well-known military stronghold. But by the time John is writing here, this city's glory days were in its past. And you could see this by walking through the famous cemetery outside of the city, where many kings had been buried long ago. But as with the previous letters, Words describing Christ from the opening vision are used to show this church that Christ himself is the one speaking to them. And so we go on to read there in verse 1. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what do these symbols from the vision mean? Back in chapter 1, if you turn back a page or two, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read a Trinitarian greeting. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So him who is and who was and who is to come refers to God the Father. And the seven spirits who are before his throne refers to God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ refers to God the Son. Remember, the number seven symbolizes fullness or completeness or perfection. And it's one of the central numbers in this book. So the seven spirits of God here is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It is there with Christ. But not only does Christ have the seven spirits of God and the Holy Spirit, 
he also has, we see here, the seven stars. Seven stars. And John explained earlier what these were. And you can move forward a little bit in, in chapter 1, verse 20. Where we read, The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Now, some see these angels as messengers referring to the pastors of these churches, but it still seems more likely to me that these are seven angels which are divinely given messengers to these churches. But what is the point? That Christ in His glory is in control of what the Spirit does and of these churches' angels. This letter is then written to the church of Sardis as coming from this Christ with all of His authority and power. And so he is the one that's in control of this church. And this church is accountable before him in his glory. Well, what does he say as this verse continues? But I know your works. He sees what they are doing from the throne of heaven, and nothing is hidden from his sight. So he gives them an unbiased and true assessment of their works. But what does he see? Unlike the other churches, he doesn't see anything positive here. So he immediately addresses their main problem. He says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive. You are dead. So their name is one of life. Of life in Christ. Today, this church would probably be called Life Church because they have the appearance of spiritual life. And what they had done through their history has given them the reputation among other churches of being alive. This was known as a church as one with spiritual vitality. It's a church that manifested vibrant life in Christ. And yet Christ lowers the boom here. He says their appearance isn't reality. And so he says to them, you're dead. Now, imagine for a moment that Christ was here present with us. And while we were worshiping, he went outside and he painted over our church sign the word dead. So as we leave, our church's name, Cornerstone Fellowship Church, is now covered with his diagnosis of our spiritual condition, dead. We may ask ourselves, what do you mean dead? We still gather to worship you, Christ. We still spend our time singing your praises. We have commended ourselves and, and, and committed ourselves to prayer. We devote ourselves to hearing your word preached. We carry out our ministry in your name. What do you mean, dead? Yet Christ says, you're dead. See, this is what this letter is confronting the church of Sardis with. You are dead. How these words would have stung. 
as this church would have heard them. How hard it would be for them to accept Christ's diagnosis. And yet, it was unquestionably true because Christ knew their works. Well, how are they dead? Uh, George Eldon Ladd, I think, summarizes well their deadness. He writes, The main problem is that of a deep spiritual apathy, which may have resulted from the softness and love of luxury which characterized the secular society. So they were living at ease in this world, uncaring about the things of God. And while they may have continued going through the motions, their souls were dead as they carried on as Christians in name. You see, like the city they were living in, they may have a name and a reputation with a great history, but this church was more of a cemetery than a living body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, how easy it is for us to live off of our past. When we remember all we have done through the years as Christians, as we've followed Christ, until we begin to take it easy. We focus on other things. We let our guard down. And we become distracted with the concerns of this world. We begin to coast in the Christian faith rather than continuing to pursue Christ and faithfully serve His kingdom. Other Christians may continue to see us as godly and mature because of our apparent faithfulness. But here Christ gives us a warning that you may be dead and not know it. So here we see a false reputation. This brings us to the second part of this letter in verses 2 to 3 with a full repentance. How should this church respond to Christ's clear diagnosis of deadness? Repent! Turn away from your deadness and be revived by the Holy Spirit through the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. But what does this repentance look like? Christ here gives five commands in these verses. So first, we see in verse 2, I'm saying, be watchful. Be watchful. And again, this likely goes back to the history of the city. While Sardis may have been a military stronghold, you know what happened? It had previously fallen twice because they had foolishly thought that there were places on the city wall that were impossible for their enemies to enter through. So they never posted watchmen there, which left them with blind spots, which ultimately were taken advantage of and led to their downfall. Here once more in the city, we see the same thing because the church has fallen into the same trap. They were not careful and diligent to see the dangers around them or the dangers among them. So they assumed they were doing fine. They continued going to church. They continued carrying on with their lives. They became focused on less important things rather than on Christ. They had become comfortable in their lifestyles. They dwelled amidst pagan immorality. So Christ says that they must wake up to be watchful. Then we read the second command as the verse continues, and strengthen the things which remain. They must strengthen what 
remains. The things that we see here are ready to die. See, while the church as a whole is dead, their death is not yet complete. And since the church is a body of Christ, picture this church as a body in an emergency room in heaven. Their heart has stopped beating. And doctors are yelling out to use the paddles to shock this heart back into beating because they will die if nothing is done. Well, Christ is here yelling out for them to use the paddles of repentance by being watchful and strengthening the things which remain. He's saying you must act quickly or there will be nothing left. Now, why is Christ's diagnosis of their pending death so serious? We go on to see, I'm saying, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Now, of course, None of a Christian's works are perfect. But what Christ is condemning here is their works because they were incomplete or inadequate. See, while we are not saved by our good works, Christ saves us to free us to do good works. And this church wasn't doing them. Their lack of good works then revealed that there wasn't spiritual life in them. But spiritual death. How then will they be watchful and strengthen the things which remain? We go on to read in verse 13, the third command. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. They're to remember how they have received and heard the gospel. Because our spiritual lives come through Christ's regenerating power when we receive and hear the gospel of Christ's grace. That Christ, out of his love for us, while we deserve death and the judgment of God for our sins, takes our place and lives the life of righteousness, we refuse to live in our sin, and then is nailed to the cross. So our sin under the judgment of God, our, 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 our death under the judgment of God is punished by Jesus Christ. And this great tragedy becomes a triumph where we look to Him with faith, with eyes of faith and see in him the one who took our place, our substitute, so that we no longer endure the wrath and judgment of God, but we rejoice and enjoy the very love of God through Jesus Christ. This is the message that this church had heard, that this church had received. But they must remember how they had received and heard the gospel through faith. They believed in Christ by trusting in his work for them and repenting of their sins against them. You see, they must continue in this faith. They must continue with this repentance. Christianity is a lifestyle of faith and repentance before God. So we go on then to see the fourth command, hold fast. 
hold fast, cannot remain indifferent to the things of God as they had become. They cannot rely on themselves or on their past. And they cannot give in to temptation or to pressure. This then is true repentance. That's the fifth and final command, which really summarizes the others here. Where you confess sin and rely on Christ as you are watchful and strengthening your faith in Him. But what happens if you don't repent, but continue on as they have been? Let's go on to see in this verse. He says, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I have come upon you. See, if they will not watch, Christ will come upon them as a thief. Now, let's, if you have God's Word close, uh, close by, turn with me to Matthew 24, verses 36 to 34, because this language was first used by Christ when his, He taught His disciples about the end of this age and His coming judgment. And so let's read together in Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44, these words from Jesus. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Notice verse, how verse 42 begins. What does Christ say? Watch, therefore. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You see how John is drawing upon this? Is he is warning the church of Sardis? Or let's turn now to 2 Thessalonians 5. Look at verses 1 to 11, because here the Apostle Paul also speaks of this coming day of the Lord. And he uses the same language of Christ here in these verses. So I know it's a longer passage, but I want us to hear from Paul this morning. So 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 11. Paul writes, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch, again, watch, and be sober. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let those who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So here John again is drawing on this imagery from Christ. And Christ, through this letter, is saying to them that his return in judgment will be unexpected because the unrepentant will not see it coming. So he warns, warns the church of Sardis of their pending destruction in their spiritual death. So I ask you this morning, are you dead in your sins? Sure, your heart may be beating. You may be listening to me this morning. But if you are living in your sin without Christ, you are dead. You're dead. And Christ is coming and will judge you, condemning you to an eternity in hell. But he's also calling on you to repent. So no one is required face this judgment for our sin, the sin, that, the judgment that we deserve, because Christ is freely offering himself to all who come to him by faith. So believe in Christ and turn away from your sins as you turn to Christ and trust in him through faith. He's calling on you to repent Repent today. But as Christians, listen, we must also not let our guard down and become consumed with the things of this world. Who is Christ warning of his judgment here? Christians. Christians in this dead church. See, we must too repent. And remember the gospel that we have received and heard. We need the gospel to be preached over and over and over again as we remember these truths in our lives. Let us then stand firm in repentance for God. This then brings us to the third part this letter where we read of a faithful remnant in verse 4. And I find this verse amazing because in the midst of the deadness of this church, there remains a few Christians among them. We go on to read in verse 4, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. So unlike most of this church's memberships, their garments have not been defiled. Sardis, by the way, in the day, was known for their wool industry. 
which is why Christ here speaks of their garments. But the point is, their garments were dirty. And so clothes here represent the pollution of our sin, as if I'm wearing filthy clothes in my sin. And whenever I hear of this, I immediately think of a children's book that was written by R.C. Sproul a number of years ago. Its title was The Priest with Dirty Clothes. So in this story, Sproul draws from the story of Joshua the high priest in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And Sproul speaks of a priest who then falls off of his horse in the mud as he's on his way to preach before the king in his court, and he is no longer worthy to enter into the king's presence. And it's only through receiving new clothes, which are clean and pure, that he can then stand before the king. Well, of course, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these verses from Zechariah. And he is the one who takes away our dirty garments of sin and robes us with his clean garments of righteousness. This is then what we call the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that we are justified by God because Christ's righteousness becomes ours. We are forgiven of our sins through the death of Christ, but we are also given the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at us, he judges us according to Christ's righteousness rather than our own sinfulness and shortcoming. This is the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see here that even in a church where most of its membership are wearing defiled garments of sin, there are a few who have not defiled their garments. What a testimony of God's grace. That in churches that are otherwise dead, Christ still has his people present. Which is why we shouldn't automatically dismiss Christians as false converts just because of the church they belong to. No matter how dead it may seem. We also see here how rare it is, right? There are only a few names out of this whole church who have remained faithful. But Christ's gospel can uphold these in the worst of situations and circumstances to keep them unstained. Well, how is this remnant described in verse, as verse 4 continues? Christ says, And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So they walk with Christ in white. They live in his presence, and he clothes them in white. These white clothes symbolize Christ's purity. Since his glory, in his glory, Christ is clothed himself in white robes. And so his righteousness becomes theirs. And they remain pure even in a church which has left Christ in their spiritual darkness. But one day, they will be able to walk with Christ in these white garments, triumphant over their enemies. Because these Christians are worthy of wearing his garments when he returns. But notice... Our worthiness to walk with Christ and to stand before God is not found in ourselves. It's not found in our good works. These garments of white are given to us by Christ. So may we be encouraged 
brothers and sisters, that no matter how hard things get, no matter how difficult things may become, Christ has a people who are kept pure in His righteousness to live faithfully in this world until He returns. And in a day where there is so much compromise and corruption and spiritual death among Christians and churches, listen, Christ has a remnant that will prevail. Because, Christ, because the gates of hell, as Jesus has promised, will not overcome his church. So this brings us to a final reminder then in verses 5 and 6. What do we read in verse 5? That he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. What happens when we overcome the temptations and the trials and the tribulations of this world? We are clothed with white garments to march triumphantly with Christ when he returns at the end of this age. Here then we see the tension in this age between the already and the not yet. We are already justified before God in Christ's righteousness, but we have not yet received the fullness of our promised blessings in him. And there therefore is a day coming when we will be clothed in these white garments, receiving them as we march with Christ into our wedding. Because these will be our wedding clothes when his church will be married to Christ as his bride when he returns. And we will forever be with Christ. Which is why we will not come under God's judgment. So we go on to read in verse 5, And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. So our names are written then in the book of life. Now, we don't have time this morning to study this heavenly book in depth. We do have this assurance from God's word that we know our names are written in the book of life and will not be blotted out as those who overcome in Christ. And because we are wearing these white garments and because our names will not be blotted out from the book of life, what does Christ promise us? We go on to read in verse 5, But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What Jesus had said in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So, for all those who live by faith in Christ and confess his name before men, we see Christ will now confess our names before God, the Father, together with his angels. See, this church had been mixed up. They were relying on their name and the reputation of their name. When what mattered? Whether they had confessed Christ's name so that he would then confess their name 
before God the Father and His angels. But for those who compromised their name in Christ so they'd be accepted by their pagan neighbors and live comfortably among them, Christ says that He will deny them before His Father because their faith is a lie. They will die in their sins. Their name will not be found in the book of life. So as with Christ's other letters to his churches, he ends in verse 6 with this statement. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They are to hear what Christ has spoken to them through the Spirit and keep his words. Remember here, this letter was not only written to the church of Sardis, but what does Christ see here at the end? That churches, all churches are to hear what the Spirit says here. Which is why we are to ask ourselves, does the church of Sardis represent us? Does Christ describe our church with these words? And this brings us back to the question we started with. Do we need a revival? Now, by God's grace, brothers and sisters, I don't think we are dead as the church of Sardis was. But we still face the same temptations and the same dangers that they face. And there are so many examples of churches that are around us and of churches throughout our nation that were once strong but have sold out to the spirit of this age. Where we even had to close their doors because there was no spiritual life left in them. Which is why we must watch out for our deadness. Watch out for our deadness. As brothers and sisters, as long as God gives us life in this world, may our faith be found in Christ alone, in whom our hope is found. And may our lives be lived as those who give glory to God with the life the, the eternal life, the, the spiritual life that we receive through the Holy Spirit. Once more, let's listen to the words of George Eldon Ladd. He, he here describes the church of Sardis so well. He writes, The church was not troubled by persecution. It was not disturbed by heresy. It was not distressed by Jewish opposition. It was well known as an active, vigorous Christian congregation characterized by good works and charitable activities. But in the sight of God, all of these religious activities were a failure because they were only formal and external and not infused with the life-giving Holy Spirit. Our church cannot afford to simply go through the motions. May we not continue living as Christians formally and externally with the name of Christ. 
May Christ so fill us through the Holy Spirit as we repent that we will be revived as a church. And as far as this spiritual deadness has influenced us, I pray that we will also experience a revival as they did in the 18th century. Let us then remember the gospel, repent of our sins, and rejoice in Christ's grace as we wait for Him to return. And we will join with Him in triumph as we will spend an eternity in His glory. Let us pray. Father, Help us to really wrestle over the question. Do we need a revival? Because it is so easy for us as Christians to just go through the motions, to simply wear the label of Christian and go on and live as the world lives, to be comfortable with this world and carry on as if this world is what matters, rather than living with an expectation and a, 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 a wait as we yearn for the world to come. Father, may we not be like the church of Sardis in its deadness, but may we repent of our sins and receive a revival in our souls so that our names will be confessed by Christ himself before your throne as we are done as we are told well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master may none of us live in such a way that we will not hear these words and Christ returns at the end of this age. So we pray for these things then in the name of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.